Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm okay. It is uh, it is rainy here. Was it rainy last week or was it still sunny? I can't remember. It was, I, I can't remember. No, I think it was I, just, so it, I, I forgot to mention we were talking about weather. There's actually a, a bat, like the worst drought in like 67 years here as well. No. No, yeah, totally. Really? Well, the problem is um, most of the water in Taiwan comes from typhoons. And there was like, there was like one typhoon last year and there was only like two the year before, which is like way less than normal. Um, which is, so Taiwan has all these reservoirs that fill up mm. during typhoons and then they use the, that water basically the rest of the year, but there's been no typhoons recently. So yeah, the reservoirs are like 20% capacity or something. So, um, yeah, so, so I, I, you know, I feel California's pain. Uh, although Taiwan in some respects is even more messed up because we are, the water here is like super cheap. It's like the cheapest in the world or something. Oh dear. Yeah. It, I mean, like, classic example of like not using, not using price. They, they might need to change that. I feel like we're like water bad luck charms. I was in Australia. It was in drought. I leave. I go to <laughs> California. It's in drought. You're in Taipei. It, Taiwan is in drought. Like, I don't know. What are we doing to these places? It's actually raining now. Um, oh, okay, it's rained true. the last few days. Well, no, but the problem is the reservoirs are in the mountains and the, the rain is all in the low, like the lowlands. It's not actually raining in the reservoirs. So, oh, so they're not, it's not a typhoon. <laughs> no, right. Exactly. Oh, um, but, uh, well, it's funny. It reminds me, this, oh, here's an interesting segue. So it, it's funny because in some respects, uh, there's stuff around here that's super smart about like using, using money as, as a, as an incentive. So for example, take the infamous garbage trucks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, for the record, uh, people told me that I can't actually hear the garbage truck. I, I do more processing on the podcast. Than I did when we first started. So maybe it's getting taken out. Um, but th- I was 100% actually taking garbage out last episode when you were monologuing. When I was talking and, and so, so, yeah. So when, <laughs> so when I said, did you know I was taking the garbage out? I was not referring to the content of what you said. <laughs> <laughs> I know I saw you, you, so People who are listening wouldn't know this. You Skype messaged me right before you did it. And I was like, well, you've got a 30 second window to get the garbage out. You got to do what you got to do. I was like, all right, well, I need to start filling this up. And so it was, it was quite entertaining for me when you came back and how long were you sitting through my monologue for? Cause I'm not no, no, exactly no, sure when no, you only, came only, back. only like the last 30 seconds. So, all oh, right. Okay. Um, but yeah, so for the record, I was actually taking out garbage when I referenced to garbage <laughs> was not in reference to the contents of what you said. <laughs> And it was good. That, that's why I left it in. I mean, I, like uh, we we cut like twenty minutes from that, but not not the monologue. So not the monologue. Thank you for not cutting my monologue. <laughs> <laughs> no, I only cut stuff that like makes us look particularly stupid. Um, that's was, why. That's why there's so much gone. Right. Twenty minutes. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, see, I was gonna say it was mostly you, but then that would be mean, and now I'm feeling very self conscious about being mean. Um. Uh. <laughs> So, um, for us, oh, so, yeah, so, so when you take garbage out, sorry, we're, this is getting the longest interaction ever. When you take garbage out, uh, to encourage recycling, uh, you have to buy specialized garbage bags. And so the idea is, well, if you have to pay extra for these garbage bags, then you'll take the time to put your recycling in a different bag and put it in the recycling truck, which comes behind the garbage truck. Oh, wow. That's really smart. Yeah. And, and like the bags aren't that expensive. Um, you know, it's, it's yeah, they're, they're maybe like double the cost of what a normal garbage bag would be, but it's, it's effective enough that like, um, you know, my mother-in-law gives me a hard time if I go outside and the bag's not like totally full, you're wasting money. Um, so what's funny is, is uh, I, I, but they won't apply the same thinking to water. Um, and is, probably, there a, is there a reason why? 
Well, the political argument is it'll fall on poor people, blah, blah, blah. I think the actual argument is Taiwan's industry um, is very water reliant. Um, mm. It's actually one of Taiwan, generally one of Taiwan's few resources is is a lot of water and uh, whether it be cement, whether it be uh, manufacturing, especially uh, like a lot of the chip stuff uh, and a lot of the technological stuff uses a lot of water. Mm. Um, I suspect that's probably uh, a bigger factor. Yeah, well, I don't. I can't imagine it would do those industries too much good to run out, and that's exactly why you want to in, use price mechanisms, right? Because the higher value stuff will be able to afford it. Uh, unfortunate for the lower value stuff, but that's the downside of a drought, I guess. Yeah. Well, I, it, there was a bad one a, f- a few years ago, and I think a lot of them have built up like alternative means now. So now it's just mainly consumers that are bearing bearing the cost. And there's an election next year, so no one wants to raise prices, and you know. Yeah, the usual. Good to see some things are universal. Yeah, exactly. So anyhow, um, I had a couple. Of, I, I I don't know about you. I had a couple of quick points of follow up from last week. Um, one was uh, some people asked why I focus on Intel and not HP as far as like the history of the valley and being important. And HP mm. was super important. I think HP is particularly important in a um, in a from a cultural standpoint, like this sort of place that it was to work at, and the kind of respect for employees and. Um, an allowance for individual creativity within a corporation was very unique and very different from the traditional East coast corporations that kind of dominated, um, United States. And so I think that, uh, HP absolutely had a massive influence. Um, I think what the thing about Intel in particular, it's not just Intel and their location and their culture, but also Moore's law and their, their pursuit of that. Um, Moore's law, the idea that the number of transitions on a chip doubles every two years. Um, that's what's important about that is not like the specifics of it. It's the idea that uh, the assumption that computers will constantly get faster. And like it's it's difficult to to overstate how important this is and because what what you do is it like everything about the value rests on this. Everything rests on the assumption that, yes, it's not doable today or it's on the edge of impossible or the edge of possible today, but just look five years down the line, it's going to be trivial. And, and so you, you know, take something like, like the iPhone or whatever, like barely on the edge of possible, but you can see where it was going Mm. and, 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 and startups, all this, like, why, why is it that you're, you know, why do you start with something with no revenue and sort of stuff? Because you want to get the seed there and, and, oh, wait, if we presume that, yes, this is very hard to use, it's very convoluted or it takes a lot of battery or whatever, but what happens if in two years it's double, what happens if in four years it's, it's, it's exponential like that and, and what drove like Moore's law and the thinking behind it and Intel's pursuit of it and Intel and the entire chip industry, like that, that was still a human choice to actually do all the hard work to make that happen to double it every two years. Like that in that thinking and that permeated the way the Valley thinks about business and thinks about technology. And that's why Intel is so core and central to the Valley. I think that's a great point. I have, I have nothing to add though. I'm curious as to what about HP, um, you think made people bring it up as well? Obviously, really big company, but what in particular? Oh, well, they, they were the kind of original, like, big company in the Valley. And and so, you 
so many companies were started by ex-HP people that followed and mimicked HP. And HP's you know origin is is in the the radios and and precision calcul cal- cal- that precision instruments measuring stuff very much tied into the military um, angle that I talked about previously. But, but what was unique about HP was their, like their culture, their workplace culture and the way they valued the flattening, like having a much more flat culture, uh, valuing uh, innovation internally. And, and as much as we can talk about companies, big companies getting stale, the Microsoft or or Google or, 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 a few, you know, fear for Apple. The reality is your, the stalest company tech company is typically way more dynamic and way more uh, flexible and forward thinking than your, than corporations in many other industries. And that really traces back to, to Hewlett Packard. Mm, yeah. I should say Hewlett Packard because it was Hewlett Packard and the HP calling it HP came, came in the sadder part of their history. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's interesting. And another company that I don't know a lot about. I Jobs reached out to one of those guys early on, right? Yeah, uh, Packard, Dave Packard. And was effectively a mentor for him uh, through the early days of Apple. Yep. If I, if I recall correctly. Yeah, and not just him, a, 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 a whole host of, of people from that era, were, you know, really, uh, especially Dave Packard, mentored a lot of them. Um, and, you know, Steve Wozniak was an employee there. Um, like so, but it's not just Apple. It's a whole host of companies. Um, those are really kind of the I think you know Intel and HP. Intel came along later, but um, I think though it's really useful to 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 understand those companies and their impact. Mm. No, I I think that's a um, that's a great point. Uh, the other follow up was. Um, Oh, we talked about like where you were going in life and, and advice and all that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, I got some emails of people like, oh, you know, it's really inspiring. Want to find a job that I love and, or, you know, and like things on those lines. And that's certainly something that I was, I've always believed and wanted to have, you know, a job that I'm very passionate about and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think one thing that I made a mistake about when I was younger was feeling like I had to have that job right now. And it was kind of like, um, it was, it, it was an aspect of, of looking to the destination or what I thought ought to be the destination and, and taking my eyes off what was going on now and not appreciate yeah. what's happening now. And, and part of it is one, like, it's very true. Like it's about the journey. Like it's part of, it's about getting there, but two, like, do you really want to have the job that you want when you're 25? Like, what are you gonna do for the next 50 years? I mean, maybe you want to do the same thing again and again, but like, there's an aspect of growing and maturing and learning. And the way the analogy I like to use is I call it the toilet bowl analogy. So <laughs> think about your career like a toilet bowl. And what I mean by that is, um, <laughs> I like where you're going with this. <laughs> you absolutely want to go down the drain at some point, <laughs> but, but, the way you get there is you don't just like dive into the drain. Like you, you circle around, you're, you're getting closer and closer and closer. And the way to think about, or at least the way I thought about jobs and where I want to do next and my, the next steps of my career, yet I had a vision of kind of where I wanted to be. But so the question was, if I was considering a particular job, like, does this get me closer? And am I circling towards that spot I want to get to? Knowing that it's probably, I'm not ready. I'm personally not ready to be there. Um, the opportunity isn't right for me to be there, but that doesn't mean you can't keep moving in that general, in that general direction. Um, and so I, 
I, I always found that a very useful way to think about stuff. Like it's okay to not have your dream job right now, mm. but just, are you, are you moving in the general direction? And if you are, then you'll probably be okay. Yeah. I have a couple of reactions to that. We, we pulled on a little bit more research um, on that uh, when we were doing the book that we talked about uh, last episode, how will you measure? And it's called this, this idea of schools of experience that if there's somewhere you want to go, what are the sets of experiences you need to have such that when you get there, you're effective at, at, at what it is that you want to do? No, totally. You don't want to get your dream job and then suck at it. Yeah. Because like, yeah, you totally don't. You, it's, it's a sign of maturity oftentimes when people say no to things like that. Like everyone wants to be CEO. If that gets offered to you tomorrow, like understanding, hey, hang on, I am actually not ready to do this yet. I, I, in my mind, that's often a sign of maturity. It's like you want to get the sets of experiences under your belt before you, you, you take it on because it can be pretty catastrophic if you get there too soon. Totally, totally agree. Um, and I think that that can help, um, you know, help you appreciate where you're at and what you can get from what you're at. Right. You mm. don't, you don't need to look at, it's like you're, it switches it from being a, a, you know, you talked about before the different forms of satisfaction. Some things are, um, are demotivating. Some things are motivating, but there's like two right. separate ways. There's two separate parts. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to look at where you're at right now as kind of a demotivating factor. Like I'm not where I want to be, but if you switch it to like, you know, this is helping me where I want to go. Exactly. Then it, it almost flips where it sits in your motivation matrix. And like right. even the worst sort of job or the most drudgerous sort of thing, um, if you are able to approach it with a, this is helping me get where I need to go. Um, it can make, it can make a real difference. Not, not just in your day-to-day happiness and also in, in your, your personal advancement. You're reminding me of this fascinating case study from business school where um they actually sent a Harvard undergrad of um, Chinese descent into some of the factories in into one of the factories in China to get to know some of the factory workers and really get a sense from a Western perspective. So she she grew up in China, but she moved to um, she moved to America to go to school um, and to really get a sense from someone who'd been exposed to both um, what it was like working inside of a factory and she came out like really surprised that a lot of them derived a lot of the meaning and satisfaction. And they did get that from what they were doing in order to help their families. So even though um, there wasn't necessarily meaning inside the work, they managed to find a way of giving the work meaning in the broader context, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And yeah. And like, it's easy to like send the outside and say that as like rationalization or, or if you're doing it to yourself, but the reality is, is reality is what we perceive. And, and, and there's a lot about reality that you can't change the facts, but you can absolutely change your perception uh, and the way you interpret those facts. And that's totally under your control. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. It's not, it's not cheating. It's not cheating at all. In fact, I mean, I, I, I feel like it's the opposite of cheating. It's, it's like, a really good way of you, you can be in what would otherwise seem to be a pretty shitty circumstance, but it's a really good way of, of put it, like using that context as, as finding, finding a purpose for it, like making it meaningful. No, absolutely. And, and, and yeah, and it, it's, yeah, like we're veering close to like the, if you, if, you know, if I believe it, then I can do it. I'm like quoting R Kelly or something. Um, I believe I can fly. Uh, I, I <laughs> please will, do not jump out will, of any windows will, right now. Yeah, and I will not break out into song either, or else that may <laughs> that may force you to jump out. 
<laughs> don't let's not find out um but no but there's absolutely i mean everything everything is, is so mental like it's it's so much about your attitude and approach to things and like that when it comes like mastering yourself so much just, it's just mastering your mind um so anyhow that was that was the that went a little long but that was that was the follow-up I had. Did you, did you have anything you wanted to, you had on your side? Mm, there was actually one thing which connected the last two episodes together that I'd been thinking about a little bit and actually kind of thought about mentioning last episode. Um, you, you, um, you, you made a statement around um, you don't make money by not spending money. You, I can't remember exactly what you, it was. You don't, you don't get rich by saving money, you get rich by making a lot of money. Yeah, no, and I think it, I think it's a very valid point. Um, there was one there was one alternative perspective that I wanted to provide, and this was some advice that was shared um, with me by a mentor, which was just be very careful about letting your lifestyle trap you in something that you don't enjoy. And Hold I on. guess what I was talking about with like the Apple Watch and not going and spending on the most expensive one because I wasn't really sure is just that it, it, it it's advice that I've seen like play out time and time again, people don't, and I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying this is true for me, but in general, people don't enjoy what they're doing. And as a result of it, they, they use money to kind of soothe the feeling of not really enjoying it to try and distract them. And then eventually they wake up one day and they're like, I really don't like my job, but I've got this expensive car and this expensive house. And I, I feel like I'm trapped in this job because of the lifestyle I've built up around me. And I've tried to be very aware of not letting that happen. No, I, I, I totally agree. Um, and I think you, you nailed probably the two biggest factors in that too, is the, is the house and job. Cause it's not, you can't, it's, it's hard to back out of that. Mm. Um, but, but yeah, but even you, just getting used to living a certain way, you, you know, yeah. Like you can't even think about not spending X amount of discretionary income. No, it's, right. it's, 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 it's spot on. Yeah. No, that was just, that was the only, it kind of, it kind of was a thread from the past two episodes that I wanted to raise, but yeah, that was it. Uh, I still think, I, I, I still think that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, so the way I think about the watch is like, there's two options, right? So I'm going to buy it. Presume you're going to, there's two parts of the decision. One is, are you going to buy a watch or not? And then two mm-hmm. is which watch you're going to buy. Mm-hmm. So presume you're going to buy a watch. You're like the $350 is a sunk cost. Right, mm-hmm. like it doesn't. That shouldn't enter in your calculation. Mm-hmm. So the question is, do you want to get the uh, the aluminum watch? What's the risk? The risk is you like the watch but dislike the aluminum, and mm-hmm. which case you like it. It you you made a three hundred and fifty dollar mistake because you 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 you're not getting that three fifty dollars back. If you want to get a stainless steel, you have to go pay five hundred fifty. Like it, you made a mistake. On the other hand, if you buy the stainless steel one. The what's the risk? The risk is you don't like the Apple Watch, right? And you don't want to wear it at all. And so your mistake isn't then a five hundred and fifty dollars mistake; it's a two hundred dollars mistake because it, you were going to spend the three hundred dollars anyway. So, uh, given that thinking, uh, if you if you presume you're going to like it, then it makes sense to me to buy the one you like. Um, of, of course, none of us are going to buy the gold one, um, but. Uh, <laughs> But then it's only what a nine and a half thousand. <laughs> so speaking of rationalization, we're going to move on right now. <laughs> Let's do it. Very good. 
Uh, you had an awesome article this week. I really enjoyed it, though. Um, the, there was one point about it that got me most excited, which was when you picked up on on Gruber's Landog Calrissian metaphor. And I'm going to let you explain, but you got me so excited when I read this. Oh, it's funny. I mean, here's a tip: uh, include Star Wars uh, include Star Wars analogies at your own risk. Because you will get people on Twitter like picking out the fine details of how you describe the scene and tell you that you didn't get it quite right. <laughs> Did which, that happen a bit? Huh? Which, which, and then you will, you will of course answer and say, "Well, no, I meant this." Blah blah blah, and then you're just like, "It's a vortex of Twitter at replies about, yeah. about Star Wars minutia." Um, you know, it's fine. Which is which? Which I found very funny. Uh, so uh, yeah, so Facebook, um, David Carr, the, the late great David Carr, first broke this news last fall, but. Um, the New York Times kind of again, again broke it that uh, Facebook wants to make a deal with publishers where uh, right now, if you can post a link on Facebook and they'll, you know, they'll pull up like the image from the article and the link, and then you can click on it and go to it. They're saying, you know, let's be honest, guys, clicking on your link kind of sucks, uh, which it does, um, especially on mobile. And wouldn't it be better if the content was just right on Facebook? And so you touch that and boom, you're reading the article you know, basically in, in a millisecond relative to the eight seconds that it takes to, to load your typical mobile article. Um, and in return, uh, we will, we'll put ads against it and we'll split the ad revenue with you. So that's, that's the offer. Uh, and, uh, lots, lots of people, um, you know, I think it seemed like the, the, most the majority sentiment in in journalism circles anyway was that this was something that that people should not do it's a bad idea probably my favorite response and maybe it was my favorite response because it was a good hook for me uh was uh, as gruber said you know his typical just one line summary of, of of the issue was i can see why these news sites are tempted by the offer but i think they're going to regret it it's like wandel's deal with vader in the empire strikes back <laughs> So, uh, you sound like a Star Wars fan, so maybe you can help provide the context of Lando's deal with with Vader. Yeah, you summarize it. I, it's been too long since I watched The Empire Strikes Back. So basically, and forgive me if I get the details wrong, and I'm I'm terrified I'm get the details wrong. So the hate will be extraordinary. <laughs> well, we're actually this is our second take because we were yeah, got it wrong the first time. It will be like the Death Star suddenly became. Uh, Fully operational and is firing down on a little this, house. This is going to be the Paris. longest podcast ever because we're going to do this part again and again until we're sure we get the details right. Um, so, so basically, uh, uh, Darth Vader is is chasing after the William Falcon. He actually he primarily wants Luke Skywalker, um, you know, because he he knows he has the Force and like so he needs to eliminate him, um, and uh, and various details that are to be revealed later. So. Uh, he wants to set a trap for them. So he finds out that Boba Fett is, is tracking the Blame Falcon because uh, Boba Fett, so Vader hires a bunch of bounty hunters, but Boba Fett is, is also working for Jabba the Hutt who wants Han Solo for the, the unpaid debts or whatever they shot Greedo for. Um, so he, Boba Fett tracks them on the way to Cloud City. He lets Vader know that they're going to be there. Vader beats them to Cloud City. So, so they're flying there. So Randall Collision is the head of Cloud City. Vader arrives there and Vader's like, Hey, there's some people coming and I want them. And I, I want them to, and he wants them to, to set a trap to attract Luke to come. Cause he really wants Luke. So that, and so he makes a deal with, with Lando that, 
uh, Lando can keep the Millennium Falcon, which Lando used to own. He lost it gambling, I think, to, to Han Solo. Uh, and keep Chewbacca. Lando, of course, develops a crush on Leia, so he wants to keep her too. Um, and, and Vader gets to attract Skywalker and, and keep Skywalker. And then and Boba Fett gets to take Han Solo back to Jabba the Hutt. So it, it's this complicated thing. And what Gruber's saying is, well, you know, the problem is, is Vader kept changing the particulars of the deal, right? Uh, first, he wanted to keep, um, and by the end, he wanted to keep everything. He and he told Lando, I, I think the, the the this final scene was, you know, take Leia and Chewbacca to my ship. And Lando's like, the, the deal was I going to keep them. And then Vader delivered the famous line, you know, I'm altering the deal, pray I don't alter it any further. Um, so bad deal for Lando, right? Like, like, why did he make a deal with with this guy who's just changing his mind? Leverage. Like, what choice did he have? Right. I mean, if Darth Vader shows up on your front door and is like, I want to make a deal with you, like, what are you going to do? Like, negotiation, you're negotiating, the, the outcome of your negotiation is only as good as your starting position. And from my perspective, uh, Lando's starting position was pretty awful. Yeah, you, you, you <laughs> yeah, you, you really want to make sure you know what you're doing before you start arguing with Darth Vader, I suspect. Right. And people are like, oh, well, he could have tipped off, you know, he could have tipped off Han Solo. And like Han Solo, like, you know, to Lando's thinking, stole his ship from him. Like, he's going to risk his city and his life to, like, take care of, like, Han. Like, no, I mean, like, he, he was, he was acting totally rational given the reality of a situation. And yes, Vader ended up changing the deal. And you can say that, oh, but you can't, it's, it's one of those things. I think we've, we've talked about this. Like you can't go back and change the goalposts. You can't go back and, and change the way things were seven, eight years ago when decisions were made. You have to put yourself in the position when those decisions were made. What were the points of leverage? What were people thinking? And if you do that, then it actually, it wasn't really a deal. It, I, I would, you, one would argue Lando didn't really have a choice. Mm. Yeah, the only one who can go back and change things is George Lucas, and Han did shoot first. <laughs> yeah, so we don't want him to change things. <laughs> um, um, yeah, okay. We should get off the Star Wars stuff. As much as I love that analogy, though, you took it a little bit further. Uh, well, I think my general take was that's where publishers are are a lot like Lando here. And um, in that Facebook is offering them a deal. And the deal is put your stuff on our site and we'll share money with you. And it's easy to sit and say, that's a bad idea. You need to preserve your brand. You need to like have independence. Um, but I'm not sure that's a valid accounting of the reality situation for, for most publishers. Yeah. It's, it's a, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> A frying pan or fire right now. I, I mean, the end end state of this, I feel like, is the complete commoditization of news. But to what extent has that not already happened? Well, it's going to make it worse. Like, if there's not even a homepage, like, sure, these guys aren't getting... I mean, it also depends on who you are. I, so you made a very valid point that depending on who you are determines and, and what your starting position is determines how you should react to this. That's exactly it. So I think what's interesting is to step back and, and, you know, we've talked about, and everyone's talked about the impact of internet and digital on media and things like that. Mm -hmm. But I think there's been very two distinct things that have happened to media and they're different. The first one was the internet and the second one is mobile. And, and the effect of those has been different. And in some respects has actually 
had opposite outcomes and opposite incentives. And I think that's what's really fascinating. What I mean by that is the internet, what the internet did more than anything was by destroying, you know, the cost of distribution uh, and having basically zero marginal cost for anything, it, it, it removed or it dramatically increased competition, right? Now your local newspaper isn't just competing with the alternative weekly or maybe there's another newspaper or whatever. It's competing with every single newspaper in the world. Uh, that And for a lot of small mid-sized papers, that wasn't a very attractive proposition, right? Mm-hmm. That's for readers. It also dramatically increased competition for advertising. Now, your local newspaper wasn't the only game in town for classified sake. Craigslist was there. And Craigslist had dramatically lower costs and, and our distribution. Newspapers were like raking it in on classifieds to a ridiculous degree. And, and there was so much, there was such a price umbrella to come in underneath that, which, I, which Craigslist did with a free product you know, they make money through job listings um, and and just obliterated, completely obliterated newspapers. And and you saw and then you you saw this with other forms of advertising and newspapers kept some. But there was all this increase in competition that really dramatically weakened, um, weakened a lot, a lot, of, a lot of newspapers in particular. Right, but not all newspapers. Well, not, and not just that, but there was lots of new publications, right? There's all kinds of new online-only publications because the thing is, is, uh, and we've talked about this a ton of times, mm-hmm. is that what's great about the internet is all those things that the established players view as bad, like no marginal costs, uh, zero cost of distribution, those are huge advantages if you're starting fresh, Yeah. right? It's It's super awesome that I can start a site that can get, you know, Yes, this week was was uh, Shashekri's two year birthday. Um, oh, happy birthday! Thank you. And uh, I actually just passed about like four million visits or something like that. Oh, that's awesome! Which cost me, for all intents and purposes, nothing. I mean, that's not true. I have, I have a decent hosting bill, but relative to printing four hundred copies of a newspaper, infinitesimal, a right? And, and absolutely. And uh, and again, like, and I'm that's very small. Like my like. New York, New York Times doing what? Probably ten times that in a day. I don't know. Um, so they're getting all this scale and all these new sites with a new cost structure. Without not New York Times, but a, a new online only site. No, no printing presses. Uh, different salespeople like are were able to build businesses on the internet by taking a new internet first approach. Right. That. Fresh sheet designed and didn't and didn't have to cut things back and all the pain associated with them disappearing. Just built it ground up based on all the new assumptions. Exactly, super powerful. The the problem though is is both both newspapers and a lot of these new sites uh, use the same business model, and that business model was display advertising. It was putting having content and having ads next to it, and that brings you to mobile. Well, the, the problem with with display advertising in general is. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of it, and and the more there is, the amount of advertising money available is not increasing. And as, but as people's attention is getting more and more fragmented, um, and and you have like the rises like these pr- programmatic advertising, where you can buy you you can buy across a range of sites targeting specific people. The 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 average cost for a particular ad spot is like inherently deflationary, mm. and so this kind of ends up where you have like a prisoner's dilemma where you want to each of your ads, you're an individual publication, your ads are getting less. So you need to make more. So what do you do? You push out more content, you pump out more content and, and you want to get more people viewing that content. So you get into these like clickbait 
headlines and trying to trick people to 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 click on your site just so you can get that just get a couple more pennies and and there's all these kind of unfortunate incentives that have arisen around display ads and their inherently deflationary nature that I think there's a, so I think there's more on an absolute basis good stuff out there to read than ever before but there's man there's a lot of noise these days yeah it became a race to the bottom as a result right and the problem now the problem though on mobile is uh a few problems one display everything doesn't really work on mobile there's not room on the screen um two uh all that stuff to, to load all those ads that's a big reason why it takes so long to load a page um and then three just the general cost of a link is higher on mobile like it, it it's one thing to click on a, on a computer with a fast connection and a fast processor that will render the page quickly. And oh, by the way, you can look at another page next to it because you're sitting on a big screen. When you're on a phone and you're dealing with a slower processor, a slower internet connection, and it's taking over your whole screen waiting for that page to load, that's expensive. And so when you say cost, you're talking about it from a user experience. Yes, from a user experience perspective. It, like, and and it's it, it it's expensive to click a link. And, and there's been all tons of studies around like just the difference that milliseconds make. And the reality is loaded when loading a page on mobile takes eight seconds, like you're just losing so much attention and traffic and all kinds of stuff. But, and so all, but so all these things, all these incentives on the desktop actually produce a worse mobile experience. And I'm sorry if I'm monologuing, but it turns out probably the best way to monetize on mobile is, native ads, which we've talked a lot about, but the most effective native ads are native ads that are in the stream where you're like, Facebook's the best example. You go through Facebook and you're seeing a ton of ads, but it's okay because in the context in which they're appearing, uh, it, 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 like it makes sense. Um, and you see this with sites like, uh, say John Gruber, uh, daring fireball. Like he, he has a bunch of short posts, occasional longer posts, but one of those posts every week is a native ad. It's someone paid for a placement that John usually writes himself about a product. And uh, and why is it effective? It's effective because I go to Daring Fireball and I read all the posts, right? Native ads work best if they're a destination, if users are voluntarily going there and immersing themselves into the stream such that they can enco- they can encounter these posts in context and be engaged with them. The problem is... To be a destination site is really hard. You have to have consistent, high quality, make it worth your reader's time. And most of us have very few destination sites. Most of our sites are are apps. Like we go to Twitter, we go to Facebook, and we follow links to sites. But we don't have those homepages on our screen. To be a destination site, though, is the exact opposite of how you make money with display ads. You're not going to become a destination site if you have a bunch of content farming and clickbait headlines. Why would I want to go to that site on my own? So you have all these sites, all these publications that I think have picked up bad habits and bad incentives to succeed on the internet that will make them distinctly unable to compete on mobile. Mm. So the question then becomes, let's say you're in charge of, um, I'm going to, I want to ask this of you twice of, of two different, uh, two different contexts. You're in charge of one of these quote unquote, um, I, I like not New York Times sites, and Facebook comes along to you and offers you this. Would you take the deal or not? 
I mean, I, I think I, I don't think you have a choice. And the reason you have a choice is because one, um, I'm sh- I I I would be I would definitely bet that the Facebook placement will monetize better, significantly better than the normal page would. So one, you can make more money in the short term. Two, um, I also think there's little question that over time, uh, Facebook is going to, because Facebook is an algorithm. They're going to prioritize stuff that's on their site that loads quickly, that has a better customer experience, which means if you're not on there, uh, you're going to get frozen out. And the reality is that Facebook dominates traffic for the vast majority of publishers, like just dominates it. And if that gets shut off, then where, where are you? Like it, you, you're, you're in a place where you're not getting any referrals to your non-monetizing site. Let's, but let's play this out. Like at, at what point does it then make sense for you to even bother with operations, all the rest of your operations? Why not just fire everybody but the writers and just have them producing content for Facebook? Like, isn't, isn't that the logical extension of what we're talking about? Why not? Well, I mean, <laughs> well, I think about like someone put this in the forum. I think it is a great point. Like, isn't that basically what what music what 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 happens in lots of other industries? I mean, you don't have to go to the Universal Records website to listen to a a CD, or you don't need to go to the uh, Paramount website to watch a movie. No, that's absolutely true. I guess the thing that's giving me pause here is that it's one company that's basically determining whether your content gets displayed or not. Well, but you can put that content in lots of places. I mean, you could still keep your website and you can, um, I'm sure eventually Twitter will have some sort of native text view sort of things that are people posting screenshots over the place. Um, and medium or whatever the platforms may be. I mean, what, the fact that they have the facts, no, but I guess my point is that the fact that they have so much attention means that just by virtue of the fact that at some point they choose to cut out people that aren't on their site, that has such a dramatic effect for whoever's left behind that they either have no choice but to uh, concede or go out of business. If what you're saying about like no. Facebook driving so much of the traffic is true. But the question is for the sites that would go out of business, like do they maybe deserve to go out of business? Like if you're uh, out there pumping out content just to get clicks and putting, you know, questionable headlines on them, like why are we so concerned about you going out of business? Like my contention and perhaps optimistic hope is that the sites that will be okay and that will have leverage against Facebook uh, are the sites that are on their own destination sites. Like you still go to the New York Times. You still go to Daring Fireball. Um, I go to Grantland, a sports site. I go to Brew Hoop, which is a Vox media property. It's about the Milwaukee Bucks. Like there are sites that have earned my direct attention and they do that by having consistent, good quality that I care about. And often they're very niche Um, I would argue that for a lot of people, or at least I hope that Stratechery is a destination site. Like, and it doesn't really matter what Facebook does. It won't have any impact on my business. Yeah, that's true. It's true. I guess, um, uh, I mean, I, yeah, it's true. I, the other thought, the other, the other question I have is, does it affect the ability for new sites to form? Like 
if they are if they're not willing to uh, if they're not on Facebook, are they able? Like, how? What's the discovery process look like in the future? But I guess that's no different than the problem they have today, right? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I think I, I suspect that. I mean, the New York Times is probably trying to walk a fine line here. I'm sure one, they're getting a very sweetheart deal from Facebook because you know, once the New York Times, if the New York Times gives the deal, it's, it's imprimatur. Like every newspaper will. Like every editor in in the United States like looks up the New York Times. That's just the way. That's the way it works. Um. So, but I think in general, like, the, yeah, the, the the big question, and this is it comes up with consoles. Um, we didn't, I don't think we talked about Nintendo or stuff, but it it comes up with with all sorts of businesses. Like we've had this discussion about disruption and that sort of thing. And I think in general, um, we we talked about like the relative versus absolute aspect of the internet. Like, mm. don't get caught up on relative numbers. Just are there an absolute number of people to make something mm-hmm. viable? And I think the internet. In a lot of cases, there's there's industries that are quote unquote disrupted, but they're not going out of business, and they're not going out of business because they still have an absolute number of people that really care, right? And maybe there it's all the high end customers, but the absolute number is so great that you can still have a viable business for a long time. And I think consoles falls in that category, and that was only ever my argument about consoles. It wasn't that consoles are not disrupted; it's that they're not going out of business tomorrow. That is something maybe for like the times, like. Okay, yes, we can maintain our group of people, um, but how do we grow? How do we expand beyond that? And yeah, there's no question you have to figure out how to use Facebook and Twitter as a marketing tool. And I think this is what Vox is doing. But there's a really interesting article about how Vox uses um, Facebook to drive traffic. Uh And they put a lot of effort into it and they put exclusive content on Facebook, but they don't put the farm on there. But yeah. uh, And but it's very active. You have to be active about it. It's not something you get for free. Um, I think that's that's probably going to be you know the reality going forward. So, I, and that does is lead me to my question: If you were the New York Times, would you accept this deal? Would you do it? I, I, so I, it's really interesting to see them there. They're the they're the biggest head scratcher. Um, you know, because uh, kind of the the you know you're a destination site, I think, when you can charge money. Because mm-hmm. like it's now it's not just getting people to come, it's getting people to come and actually open their wallet for you, right? And the New York Times has over a million digital subscribers, which which big picture isn't huge, but it's still you know pretty darn impressive. Um and all any article on Facebook is certainly going going to be free. Um that said, how much crossover is there between people that would subscribe to the New York Times and people that are going to to read these articles on Facebook? And you could say that one way, well, none of these people are going to ever subscribe. But on the other hand, it's like, well, they need to grow. Like they need to expand their audience. They need to expose people to to the brand. Or there's a more prosaic argument, which is they might make a whole bunch of money doing this. Like this is real. It is a win-win for Facebook and the New York Times. And, and I wouldn't be surprised again if they got a pretty good deal. And why would and in the long run, it's in Facebook's interest. Facebook wants their. And I think people are are underselling Facebook here. Like, I, what what good would it do Facebook to get people like the New York Times on board and then stab them in the back? Well, you you said it yourself. If they get the New York Times on board, they're like every newspaper. Like that's the blessing of the 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 biggest and most respected newspaper in the world. Everyone else falls into line. But the end game, to a certain extent, is the commoditization of of news, or the further commoditization of news. The end game for Facebook is continued customer engagement with the timeline. Like, like 
and but, but like priorities matter and and yes you want to commodify your compliments and so getting news for free and high quality content for free is certainly a strategic initiative for them um at the same time having the best possible content and the best possible experience in their time feed is the highest priority for them. And so I think, yes, it's not going to be a perfect relationship. I think Apple and the app stores may be an interesting way to think about this. Like at the end of the day, like Apple does, isn't, hasn't perfectly optimized the app store for developers to make the most money. In my opinion, I've talked about this a million times on the other hand, it's still a pretty good deal for developers. Like, it used to be you had to get a distribution agreement with like Comp USA and give them 60% of your price to get on a shelf so someone could buy it and bring it home and stick it in a disk drive and install it. Right. Whereas like people forget how transformative the app store was and how easy it was. And the fact that it was, it was your, your app was only ever a link away. And, um, and I think, and it just dramatically increased the market for software and dramatically increased the opportunity. And I think, yeah. I don't think it's unrealistic to think that this could be a similar sort of opportunity. No, I, I get what you're saying, but I'm not sure that the comparison is completely fair because you're bringing developers on to create something that previously hadn't been created. And, and in that world, you actually do have to make sure that, that what you give developers is enticing enough for them to continue to create it. Whereas when you're talking about the creation of news, a lot of these companies are already in the business of creating news. And what you're convincing them to do is not create new news for you. It's to take the news they've already created and put it on their site too. And I, I would, if I, I mean, yes, Facebook absolutely cares about user experience, uh, user engagement rather, but I am absolutely certain that they're interested in user engagement at the lowest possible cost. And uh, if uh, if I'm thinking about leverage, once you have the New York Times and once you have a whole bunch of these sites on, you get more and more people used to just clicking on news in Facebook, they start to not really care what the source is. It's just like, is it being clicked? And I, I almost wonder if Facebook isn't then able to start creating new sources independent of the New York Times just by, I mean, it's it starts to give the benefits of scale. Maybe they start to share the same kinds of tools that BuzzFeed have created such that people get smarter about creating articles that get shared. And the New York Times, by playing into this, is actually is is accelerating this process of commoditizing news. So one, my contention is that's already happened. The The majority of news that people get is at the end of a link and they don't pay attention to where it is or where it's from. So, my, so to my extent, you, you're framing this as a big loss that I think has already occurred for one. Hmm. For two, um, at the end of the day, I mean, like Facebook, Facebook doesn't want to become a news creating company. Like it's not, it's not nearly high leverage enough. Like there's a reason why content companies until recently were kind of shunned by VCs uh, because you have to keep creating it, right? Mm. What makes Facebook so powerful and so such an, and in general, internet businesses so powerful is like Facebook doesn't create any content. Like they have people creating content all the time for Facebook for free. But I mean, I guess my question is, is that what they're hoping to do with news as well? 
Like if, if, you can, if you can get access to the same audience that the New York Times has access to, you can have access to the same um, tools that, that, I mean, con- conceivably, they, once they start to see these massive audience trends, if they get lots and lots and lots of people reading news that's native on Facebook, they could start to create tools similar to what BuzzFeed have in terms of training people to help understand, provide them with tools. This is the kind of thing that works. And it gets to the point where you're, you're, uh, you're anybody and you can create a piece of news and you're willing to do it for the, like for very little cost at all just because of all the other benefits that accrue to you from having something successful like unexpected opportunities, a brand thing that accrues to you. Uh, but the but New York you, Times you can do that now. Like you could like and people have built brands on Facebook and you can do that with a blog. Like, I mean, I, I don't see how that's anything dramatically different. I, I think there. So it's an interesting question. I was thinking about approaching this piece originally from the from the perspective of like what's like what's the point of a publisher? Mm-hmm. Right. Because because, uh, you know, previously a publisher uh, provided things like uh, distribution, the actual printing of the paper, like lots right. of stuff that no individual could do on their own don't need that anymore though. Right. And, and so I and, and Gruber and are an extreme case where we actually do all that part on our own. Uh huh. Um, but at the same time, like there's, there, there are other aspects of news, whether it be, uh, you know, like, the, like so I bootstrap, so I bootstrapped, right. Where I, I, did another job and uh-huh. I started the blog and I built up the blog and then I went and then I went independent. And, and frankly, um, you know, one of the reasons why, uh, one of the, I think the, my model is good from a subscription basis, but one of the reasons I did it beyond just a business model perspective was that let me get money in the door from day one. Mm-hmm. Right. It, I do sometimes wonder like, what if all my daily updates were actually on the blog? Like how much traffic would I actually drive? Like I, I, I would I have 10 times, the the the, the visitor I've, I've had now maybe um i actually think it's probably probable uh and i'd probably have more readers and more reach like there's a lot of benefits for having a free mm-hmm. site the problem is eventually maybe i could get to a stage where i could make enough money on advertising um but how do you get from here to there uh, and that's and so there's an aspect I think to publishers and publishing that is still valuable and important. It's almost like being, um, it's it's like a like there's there's still back end scale that that is beneficial. It's whether that's uh, advertising or whether that's uh, paying for people to get started or whether that's training. Like there are, are aspects to creating compelling content. That are still that still can be socialized to an extent across a, a, a number of people as opposed to being an individual and mm-hmm. and I think the publishers that figure out how to specialize on that how to specialize on the back end um, are the ones that that can potentially thrive in this new environment. Right, but so so the, this notion of what you're describing, like. If if Facebook offers a similar deal, so I'm assuming that they're, they're offering a sweetheart deal to the New York Times to get them on board. But let's assume that at some point in the future, there's a flat rate, there's a flat agreement whereby anyone who publishes and the article does a certain, like it, it generates a certain amount of engagement, gets a certain amount of money. Like, isn't the New York Times effectively giving up its advantage to Facebook? Like, if you're a writer and you can, you can, 
like you can publish on Facebook and you could conceivably, if you're good, you could make more money than if you work at the New York Times. You could get more engagement. You could get more exposure. Why not? Why not just work on Facebook or why not go to the New York Times, get in a, get it, get, get, build a brand and then leave and just write on Facebook on your own? How is that? But I, I don't understand how that's not already the case. But isn't this, isn't them working with Facebook only accelerating that? I, I, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, like what, what, like maybe if the entire news industry was a single entity, uh, they could, they would have leverage in their negotiations versus Facebook. But the reality is uh, every newspaper and every publisher is an independent actor. And, and so they're all negotiating with Facebook independently which means that the optimal outcome for an individual may not may be different than the optimal collective outcome, but if there's yeah. no way to enforce the collective outcome, then the individual outcome will, will, will prevail. So, oh, I, so go ahead. I totally agree. I just think that when you're one of the leading players that actually that, that going and doing this and potentially making that uh, an acceptable thing for everyone then to go and do may actually not be the smartest play. Well, well, on the other hand, if, if, if lots of other publishers go to Facebook and then no one ends up going to the New York times from Facebook, um, like where, where do they get new readers? Where do they grow? Where, what, yeah, where how do they replace all that money? It's a, it's a good question. You're actually, this is reminding me of, um, the Apple pay episode where, we talked about the fact that uh, all the banks are lining up to get on Apple Pay because they want to be the first credit card at the top of people's lists. And maybe there's an element of this. The New York Times is, has accepted the, has gone for it first, seeing the writing was on the wall and thinking, well, if we're first, we'll get a really good deal out of it. No, totally. And, and by the way, to be clear, like we're, we're, we're talking about the New York Times because I think it's the most interesting here because they mm. are a destination site. But my right. my article was mostly about other sites, not yeah. the New York Times. It's about other sites that aren't destination sites, sites that mostly survive by being at the end of a link. Those mm. are the sites that I think are doomed, and and those are the Lando Calrissian sites. The 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 uh, New York Times is a little more like the Luke Skywalker site in that um, Facebook wants them. They're trying, they're perhaps trying to entrap them, but they have, they have, they might not be, they're, they're not they're, like Facebook is a giant and they can't really fight them head on, but they can at least put a battle on, right? They can get, they can, they can, they can cross swords a couple of times. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think just, just to be clear, I think it's a useful distinction to draw. Most of my article was not about the New York times, mm -hmm. I think, but that's why the New York times is perhaps the most interesting part of this. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I completely agree with your conclusion about what's going to happen to these other sites, uh, or, or, or to the to the 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 players in the news industry that don't have the same scale. And then I just wonder how long it is before it it starts falling apart altogether, to the extent where it's just writers churning out articles, and then the writers are like, "Well, why don't I just write straight on Facebook?" Well, that's um, but that's that's big picture. That's that is. If it's not, I mean, necessarily just on Facebook, it could be on a blog, it could be wherever. Like the, the thing with text is because text is so easy and cheap. Uh, I think you see what happens with text is kind of the precursor to what's going to happen or what ought to happen 
um, with lots of other stuff. So so I think the disconnect in this conversation between us is I recognize that anyone can go out and start a blog like you have, well, conceptually anyone can go out and start a blog like you have done. And if they're good enough, they'll build up a following. But actually putting in place all this infrastructure, if you're a young writer who's perhaps not tech savvy and getting everything set up and making decisions around business model is actually beyond most people. What I think is interesting about this Facebook thing is that is the long-term potential for the complete removal of friction where you just, in the same way you log in and you sign up for a Medium account, you log into Facebook, you sign up for a writer account and they just have an automatic rev share based on engagement around your article. And the reduction in friction may make it so attractive, um, whereas previously, it's just so hard to get it to, to work. No, absolutely. Um, I, I, think that's in, I think that's inevitable, whether it be Medium that does it or whether it be Facebook directly. Like, uh, the, the challenge, though, is like, you know, and the the offer that, and this is why publishers need to reframe themselves. I think away from being again, not necessarily the New York times or someone that's managed to build a real brand, but I think a lot of there's an opportunity for a new kind of publisher, just like there was an opportunity for a new online only publisher. I think there's an opportunity for a new kind of publisher that is all about supporting the writer. And because most writers can't just go off and start writing, right? You need to actually build your audience. You need to build up to a point where you need that support. Well, what if there, like, what if there was a way to um, to have a platform that helps people come up and gives them an opportunity and lets them make a living so they can actually build an audience? Like, that's it's almost like the future of publishers is more like a music label in a lot of, in a lot in a lot of sense. Yeah, um, music labels get a bad rap, but they're also super essential to the system because the reality is most musicians, you know. <laughs> for better or worse, don't want to like bootleg their, 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 their album. They want to go and make an album and then build fans and concert and tour. And the reason they can do that is because uh, labels give them an upfront payment. The same thing with like, we tell us with the book publishers, mm-hmm. like this is where the value remains. It's kind of like being the VC of, mm-hmm. uh, writers. of writers, right? It, it's, it's investing in lots of different ones and some will make it most won't, but the ones that make it, if you can share in their success, um, I think there's there's potential there, and that's where publishing I think needs to go. Uh, the idea of publisher, and so it's it's basically it's basically bundling in the back end. It's getting it's getting scale benefits on the back end. Mm. I think the days of getting scale benefits on the front end are are increasingly limited. Up. Right, yeah, exactly. The, you're reminding me of a football club actually that that. It's called Boca Juniors, I think, or uh, it's it's an Argentine club that effectively is a feeder club for all the other. Bi- it's a junior club, and it's a feeder club for all the other big clubs all around the world. And I, if I'm recalling correctly, they make a whole lot of money by trading out, bringing in young talent, developing them, and then trading them out to other big clubs. That like, wow, this guy's good. We want him. Right. No, totally. It's a really interesting idea, like finding a way of developing talent. It's, I think it's kind of hard to monetize because once someone's good, it's, they can kind of take their audience and go. And as the New York Times discovered with um, Nate Silver, it's kind of hard to control the talent in that sense. Yeah, no, I mean, obviously there's going to be some sort of, yeah, transition. And, and um, you know, 
there's always, and there's always struggles because whoever succeeds, like you look at the music industry, right? Whoever succeeds then feels like the music labels being unfair to them. And everyone mm. thinks music labels are so mean when, well, actually they have to be unfair to the person who succeeds because they're the one that pays for all the ones that don't succeed. Right? right. Like no, no one, like what about all the failed musicians that got a big check from a label and didn't amount to anything? Like, is everyone saying like, Oh, the musicians are being so mean to the labels, by not making them any money. No, they're not like, it's kind of a, it's kind of a tough PR game to be in, but it's, it's, I mean, yes, the music industry has the problems that it has, but it, it, it has worked. And I think there's aspects of that, um, that, that, that are the future for, and that's something that Facebook doesn't want to get into. Facebook isn't going to like fund writers. It certainly doesn't want to develop them, but I could see a world in which it does pay people a certain amount for engagement. And if you create a hit article, then you have a check coming in the mail every every month. Right, like a rev share sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, right, but they're not going to give you an upfront payment. Um, you know, that that's not their business. Yeah. So, it, sorry, go interesting. ahead. Interesting. No, no, no. It's just really, really interesting. I, I well, don't know. The I, thing in the big picture, though, is like this is like the reason why text is interesting, why this discussion is interesting is this is what's happening everywhere. Yeah. Like, like what the, like the two big things with the internet, I mentioned it earlier, is number one, uh, distribution costs become zero. And number two, marginal costs become zero. And when that happens, you get a perfect match between or much more perfect match between supply and demand. Like everything in the middle, all the transaction engines, all the things that smooth those connections are gone. Like they're going to get wiped out because there's no money to be made. And, and this is a potent, this is very interesting for consumers. You have all these more options for demand. It's very interesting for demand generators, but you know, Without friction, it's hard to make money. That's that's always going to be the question. Um, but you think about it. I mean, what what's the end game? Like, I, I, I am making money with words. Like, they're, they're trivial to copy. But, it, you know, ideally, it's because people f- actually find them valuable. And they and same thing with apps. Like, some apps really are highly differentiated, and they're making a lot of money. Um eating in a very competitive marketplace. And that's great. That's great for consumers. Again, my criticism of Apple's, I think it's, it's too hard, but um, the reality is, is, is competition. Competition is a good thing. As long as there's enough of a bit of friction that, that the best stuff can, can emerge. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I guess what I worry about is it's one thing to be complaining about Apple when, it relates to apps that provide functionality on your phone. What scares me a little bit more is like we're having this conversation in five or 10 years and we have complaints about Facebook and the distribution of information and uh, they take a gargantuan share in, in terms of people reading stuff online and it's very hard to do anything about it. It's From a societal perspective, it just feels more precarious. But that's already the case. It, I know, but this is accelerating it. I think. But is there anything that can be done to stop it? I mean, that's an interesting question. It's reminding me back of that conversation we had very early on about how the nature of regulation in the internet era, in an era of of, um, unlimited choices, whereas previously it used to be scarcity, now there's abundance, how 
regulation in an era of abundance needs to be thought about entirely differently. No? No, I, I agree. I had nothing to add. I always get scared when there's silence on the line. It's like, did I just say something that made completely no sense? And and you're just like, James, what are you doing right now? I, I, I don't know. I'm just always... Regulation has so many unintended consequences. Oh, no, I agree. I, I hesitate to land on that point as well. But the idea of a, of a private organization hosting not only hosting the content, but determining what content gets displayed for such a huge proportion of the world's population. Like there's a, there's a reason that you have um, media regulation in a lot of markets and it's, it's not necessarily a good thing to have one person in control of all that information and the way it gets distributed to people. And I feel like we're setting ourselves up, uh, maybe not through an active choice, but just the way things are going, we're setting ourselves up such that one organization is going to have an outsized amount of control in terms of what gets put in front of people, in terms of what they read, what they see, what they engage with. Right. But the problem is all those people are choosing to let that happen to themselves. No, I, I understand. Um, I, I, I understand. But moves like this are accelerating it, right? Like, Okay, you just give us your content and we'll give you some money and then we'll decide what gets displayed. On that note, I will talk to you later. See you, mate. Bye. Bye.